service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The imitations produced in this record are made by the human voice alone, without the aid of any mechanical device whatsoever. Why, hello, Warren. I thought you'd gone up to the city. No, I missed the train. I got down there just in time to hear the old whistle about a quarter mile down the track. Something like this. The stories about actress Lana Turner are insane. In the 1940s, she sold millions of movie tickets as a feature film femme fatale and just as many war bonds as Uncle Sam's most famous cheerleader. She rubbed elbows with L.A. gangsters, most notably with the infamous Mickey Cohen and his crew. She was the pinnacle of Hollywood glitz and glamour, yet her personal life was mired in tragedy. Her father was found brutally murdered after a late-night poker game when she was only nine years old. Years later, her mobbed-up boyfriend would die suddenly in her Hollywood home, allegedly an accident at the hands of her daughter. And despite the way she was seen by the public, not to mention the dumpster fire that was her personal life, Lana Turner made great films. Unlike that clip I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Lillian Drew and John Oren performing the vaudeville sketch, A Study in Mimicry. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Edward Dimitrix, The Young Lions. And why would I play you that specific slice of celluloid cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on April 4th, 1958. And that was the day that Johnny Stompanato met the sharp end of a kitchen knife inside Lana Turner's home. On this episode, LA gangsters, deadly poker games, the sharp end of the knife, and preeminent pinup girl, Lana Turner. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season one, Hollywoodland. December 14, 1930, San Francisco. They found his body slumped against a warehouse in Potrero Hill, intersection of Mariposa and Minnesota. Legs spread apart, feet akimbo, head against the wall, bruised over his left eye. They said he'd been dead for a few hours, easy. His diamond stick pin was gone, and so was his wristwatch. His money was gone, too. He'd won the pot at the evening's poker match, or was it the morning? The all-night poker games downtown didn't run on clocks, they ran on luck. His luck was about to run out. He had done what he always did when he found himself a bit more flush than usual. He stuffed the scratch deep into the sock on his left foot. He walked away from the poker table, a big winner with a big mouth, bragging all the way. Next, he stopped by a nightclub to brag to his estranged wife, Mildred, who was in the middle of her shift. She told him to scram. Then he stopped by his hotel room at 4th and Mission. He rented it by the week. He bragged to his reflection in the mirror, took a leak, slapped on some aftershave. 
he walked back out into the salty Frisco air, looking for the next place to drink or gamble away a chunk of the bills in his sock. Hours later, it was morning and the money was gone, the sock too. And Virgil Turner, a 38-year-old war veteran, he was long gone. The stevedores down on the dock knew Virgil as their boss. The guys he played cards with knew him as Ernie Johnson. His daughter, Julia Jean, knew him as Daddy. The feds back in Wallace, Idaho, knew Virgil as the silver miner who ran corn liquor on the side. And the feds started to ask questions about his bootlegging operation, it being prohibition and all, and pretty soon Virgil wasn't running corn liquor anymore. He was the one doing the running, quite literally. One night, under the cover of darkness, Virgil skipped town, wife and young daughter in tow. They ran as far away as they could, far from silver mines and straight into gold country. But in San Francisco, they weren't so much a family unit anymore. Virgil and Mildred split. The little Julia Jean was staying with friends out in Stockton when her father wound up dead that fateful December morning. And the cops thought it obvious to track down some of the other usual gambling delinquents, the ones who were probably at the same table with Virgil the night he died. It was very likely that one of them had tailed Virgil that night and overtaken him when the time was right. But the autopsy gave them pause. And there were no other apparent wounds to Virgil's body, just that welt above his eye. Whoever decked him gave him a cerebral hemorrhage. Bam! Just like that, he died fast. It was so well orchestrated, so clean, so precise, that the cops wouldn't rule out the possibility that it was the work of someone with more than a bad poker hand and a grudge. Gennaro Bricolo level shit. Maybe Luigi Malvez or Frank Lanza, the Fisherman's Wharf gang. The cops didn't know if they'd ever get the who, but they had the what. Virgil Turner had found himself on the wrong side of the wrong person for the very last time. As far as wannabe European oubliettes went, the street of Paris was damn nice. Continental food, old world decor, booze straight off the boat. But as soon as you climbed the steps into the lobby of the Hotel Christie, you knew you weren't in Europe. You were actually in the land of make-believe. Hollywood Boulevard, 1942, new. The blonde starlet in the tight sweater took another sip of her mimosa and smiled politely at the guests milling about the small yet stately streets of Paris. And the starlet's husband stood at her side, newly hitched, marriage number two for both of them. He shook the hands of the men as she hugged the women. The men who were shaking hands stole as many looks as they could at the drop-dead starlet in that skin-tight sweater and tried not to let their jaws actually hit the floor with unbridled lust. And the couple thanked their friends for coming. It really was a nice party, the starlet thought. She only wished her daddy were there. Not a day went by that she didn't think about her father, Virgil, and how she never got to say goodbye before he died, propped up against a warehouse a few blocks from the central basin. but. She never talked about it. Anyway, that was a long time ago. It had been years since anyone called her Julia Jean. She went by Lana now. The entire country knew her by that name, Lana Turner. Even better, they knew her by sight. And what a sight. Lana Turner was the kind of woman that launched a thousand ships, and it wasn't just for her face. She was the kind of woman that caused men to walk into telephone poles as she strode by on the other side of the street. The kind of woman that got the ink pens at MGM's animation department worked up into so much of a tizzy 
that pretty soon they were creating entire shorts whose only plot was that of a wolf salivating over a buxom character who bore more than a passing resemblance to the actress. And she worked that image to perfection to become the preeminent pinup girl during wartime. She toured the U.S. for 10 weeks in 1942 to promote war bonds, offering up her bankable kisses to the highest bidders. Lana alone was responsible for over $5 million in war bond sales. And she may not have been the greatest actress any of them had ever seen, but in movies like Love Finds Andy Hardy, Honky Tonk, and Johnny Eager, the spell she cast alone gave audiences in the late 1930s something even more indelible than acting chops. Everyone in Los Angeles took notice of Lana Turner, not least of all, the underworld. Lana Turner knew the mob, even if she didn't really know that she knew the mob. Or maybe, as became her M.O. just a decade later, she just wouldn't fess up to knowing the mob. But the mob was all around her. The guy who discovered her as a teen sipping on a malt at a drugstore across from Hollywood High, the one and the same who stopped dead in his tracks by the sight of her alone, slipped her his card and delivered that now famous line, do you want to be in pictures? That was Billy Wilkerson. And Wilkerson wasn't just editor of The Hollywood Reporter, he was a compulsive gambler, high stakes. Wilkerson had the ear of some of LA's most dangerous and influential men, first name basis with Bugsy Siegel. He was even cozier with the guy who owned the streets of Paris, the one and the same who was behind this brunch mingle sesh underway at the underground hangout. And that was Meyer Harris Cohen, AKA Mickey Cohen, AKA Mickey C, AKA The Mick, AKA The King of Sunset Strip, no scratch that, The King of Los Angeles, Jack. One-time Capone associate, former right-hand man to Bugs himself, race wire racketeer, the only guy in LA who could spit on the sidewalk and make the nightly news, and probably, no, absolutely, the toughest motherfucker in LA, having survived not one, but at least, what, six attempts on his life, including that time, would-be assassins wired a shit ton of dynamite to his house and tried to literally blow him away. But Mickey Cohen wouldn't be blown away. The feds would learn that a few years later when they couldn't nail him for any of the bad shit they knew he was behind. So they nicked him on tax evasion charges and put him away at McNeil Island in Washington State. He bounced out of the pen just a few years later, the mid-50s, and back in Lana Turner's life in ways neither of them could have predicted. But back in 1942, at the streets of Paris, Lana wasn't on a first-name basis with the Mick. All she knew was that he was a friend of Wilkerson's and that any friend of Wilkerson's was a friend of hers. Lana would get closer to the mob over the next decade, closer than her father ever got. Just like her father, her connections to the West Coast underworld would result in an unexpected twist of the plot and a deadly twist of the knife. The phone ringing in Sean Connery's room at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel woke him up from his power nap. He looked at the clock next to the bed, 11.30 a.m. He needed to get back on set soon. The phone rang again. It's probably a wake-up call, courtesy of Walt Disney, his current employer who had him on loan from 20th Century Fox. Connery picked up the receiver, not Disney. Heavy breathing, and then a calm introduction. More tortoise than hair. 
you know who this is? The voice on the other end of the line said. Connery had some idea. The voice was deep, sounded like a sinus infection with a grudge. But the voice wasn't interested in Connery's guesses. Rhetorical question, the voice said. And then the voice introduced itself as Mickey Cohen. Connery knew who he was, correct? Good, good. Did he know the reason for his call? Again, that was rhetorical. Mickey has some friendly advice, one-time only advice. Listen up and listen closely. Get the fuck out of Los Angeles. And what if he didn't? Mickey Cohen would send one of his boys around to Sean Connery with a free lesson. The lesson he should have been taught already. Now, Connery knew what that was all about. That thing that happened on the set of his last film. That thing that happened abroad, but managed to humiliate Mickey Cohen from over 5,000 miles away. London, 1957. Sean Connery had been handpicked to share top billing in another time, another place, by the film's co-star and love interest. Lana Turner chose the 26-year-old Scott for a major role in a major British melodrama. He owed her his career. This is pre-Bond Connery we're talking about, pre-anything Connery really, but at six foot two, devastatingly handsome, and with that soon-to-be iconic accent, he was easily a leading man in anyone's eyes. Lana knew leading men, as good as they looked, they often served to make her look even better, as if that was even possible. There was John Garfield in The Postman Always Rings Twice, the 1946 film noir where Lana got to play the femme fatale. And there was Kurt Douglas in The Bad and the Beautiful, the 1952 drama where Lana was robbed of an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Her own industry was so loath to recognize her talent that they nominated her co-star Gloria Graham instead. Despite the fact that Graham was on screen for a mere nine and a half minutes, at the time, the shortest performance to ever win an Oscar. Awards were nice and all, but fame and power were better. Lana was attracted to the men who had one or the other, even though many of them treated her badly. Mickey Rooney, Frank Sinatra, Robert Stack, Gene Krupa, Howard Hughes, Peter Lawford. And by the time she arrived in London in 1957, she was working on divorce number four, this one from Lex Barker, an actor known for playing Tarzan, but who would soon be known better as a shitty husband and allegedly an even shittier stepfather to Lana's preteen daughter. In Lana's eyes, Connery was as good as a man could be, honest, decent, upstanding. The two got on like a house on fire. Connery showed her around the big black smoke, took her to the best restaurants, and accompanied her to shows in the fashionable West End. There was one person, however, who did not appreciate all the attention Lana was receiving from her Scottish co-star. Lana's American boyfriend at the time, Johnny Stampanato. Johnny was irate, and that's putting it mildly. He saw red before he even boarded a non-stop flight from Los Angeles to London. His intentions weren't exactly a secret. He was going to fucking kill Sean Connery. Johnny Stompanato had been plucked from obscurity just like Sean Connery. But in Stomp's case, his benefactor wasn't a blonde Hollywood bombshell. It was Mickey Cohen who pulled Stomp up from the depths of the low-level extortion racket and gave him purpose. Stomp quickly became Mickey's bagman and his driver, the guy who got his hands dirty when Mickey didn't want to fuck up his nice press suits. Stomp didn't mind getting dirty. He'd gotten into organized crime on the dirtiest level, extorting the upper crust of LA with nudie photos and recordings he either paid top dollar for or made himself. 
Studio fixers like Eddie Mannix at MGM would happily toss some hush bucks at Stomp if it meant that their contract star's squeaky clean public images wouldn't be dragged through a very public muck. LA's finest new Stomp was dirty, and they pinched him over and over again, but nothing ever stuck. Vagrancy, armed robbery, illegal possession of a firearm. They put Stomp under the harsh interrogation room lights when someone put a hole through Edward Nettie Herbert with a shotgun, but he walked a free man on that, too. It never said nothing, just like Mickey had taught him. Contrary to what Mickey had taught him, Stomp knew that his own survival sometimes meant that he had to turn on his own people and give the cops what they wanted. Sometimes it was a name. Other times, an address, a piece of gossip that he had caught floating through a basement office where weekly takes were counted. Stomp always knew a guy if a guy was what you were looking for. Stomp didn't take pride in being an informant, but at the end of the day, he looked out for number one. And if it meant the difference between prison and not prison, Mickey Cohen was no longer number one. But like many people in Hollywood, Johnny Stompanato had other plans. He wanted to be in pictures, and more than that, he wanted one of Hollywood's leading ladies draped on his arm. Not just any leading lady, he wanted Lana Turner. Lana didn't even know that Johnny Stomp was Johnny Stomp when they began dating. He told her his name was John Steele. He didn't mention anything about Mickey Cohen or shaking down Hollywood's elite with blurry titty pics. In fact, Lana didn't know much about the guy besides the fact that he really liked her and he worked hard to win her over. She soon found out that John Steele was a bunch of bullshit and that Stomp's day-to-day -day business was a lot darker and more violent than she could have ever imagined. That darkness and that violence crept into their day-to-day -day life. Stomp was quick to anger, impulsive, spoke with his fists when he was tired of speaking with his mouth. But one of his broken record threats was the one he made to slice up Lana's face with a knife, render her unemployable. And if Lana's daughter, 14-year-old Cheryl Crane, was nearby, he'd extend the threat to her, too. Threats turned to shoves, shoves to smacks, smacks to bruises. And this was a huge problem. Lana wanted out. She wanted Stomp to move on. But Stomp wasn't the moving on type. As far as he was concerned, Lana belonged to him. End of story. The fear of retribution by Stomp, or maybe worse, by Mickey Cohen was paralyzing. And it was impossible to know just who was in Mickey Cohen's pocket. So Lana kept her relationship with Stomp on the down low. And the opportunity to star in another place, another time, seemed like a godsend, an answer to her prayers, because it took her all the way to London, far away from Hollywood, and very, very far away from Johnny Stompanato. And the distance only managed to make things worse. Stomp couldn't sit still back home. He was being fed a steady diet of rumors that his girl was getting hot and heavy with her co-star. Meanwhile, he was stuck sitting around LA like a real chump. And so he did a thing that only a jealous, violent extortionist would do. He took matters into his own hands. When Johnny Stompanato hit the film set in London, he stuck out like a sore thumb. Lime green suit, silk shirt unbuttoned all the way to his waist, tiny pistols for cufflinks, entitled American gangster attitude. He muscled his way past Lana, just like always. He went straight for Connery, hand outstretched, cold 38 tucked inside his fist. Stomp was mumbling something to the effect of he didn't know how they did it in Scotland, and he didn't give two shits either. This was how they did it in America, and this was what Sean Connery had coming to him, that six-foot-two, brogue-having pencil fuck. And the cameras were still rolling when Stomp made his move. Lana screamed. The revolver was aimed directly at Connery's chest. Someone yelled, cut. 
chocolate stop was in over his head. Connery was ex-Royal Navy, decent, honest, upstanding, and a straight-up badass. Connery moved fast. He shielded Lana behind his body with his left arm. His right hand grabbed onto Stomp's wrist and gave it a quick twist. Something snapped, Stomp hollowed. Connery ripped the gun from Stomp's limp hand and tossed it onto the ground. A few crew members gasped. Stomp grabbed his injured hand. You Scottish fuck, he snarled and took one step towards Connery. Connery moved fast again. He brought his right arm back, fist clenched, and decked Johnny Stompanato right in the nose. Stomp nursed the busted schnoz on the next plane back to the States, having been deported by Scotland Yard for bringing an unlicensed firearm into the country. It was a bad look, and it didn't make Mickey Cohen happy. Less happy was Johnny Stompanato, who returned to Los Angeles with more than simply his pride wounded. He was insulted, rejected, jonesing for some kind of physical revenge. And he had officially become the most dangerous person in Lana Turner's life. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. John Wayne approached the podium at the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood with none of his customary lazy gait. He walked fast to the rhythm of the audience's applause. His mind was set on the glass of wild turkey waiting for him backstage. And the sooner he got this formality over and done with, the sooner he'd get to put more bourbon on his lips. In this particular role, presenter at the 1958 Academy Awards ceremony was an obligation. Not something he wanted to do, but something that was expected of him. Duke had traded in his customary Monument Valley duds for a black and white tux. He reached the podium, exchanged some pre-written banter with MC Bob Hope, and then, envelope in hand, proceeded to list off the names of the performers up for Best Actress. Deborah Kerr, Anna Mignone, Elizabeth Taylor, Joanne Woodward, and, for her performance in Peyton Place, Lama Turner. Peyton Place had been released a few months earlier, in December of 1957, just in time to be Oscar-worthy. It wasn't exactly a box office smash, and the controversial novel that it was based on had been a huge hit in 1956 despite the negative reviews. The critics called it trash. The book depicted the underbelly of seemingly idyllic small-town life, with nods to incest, abortion, adultery, and murder and the readers who kept it on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year did so by buying and reading it in secret. It was the Fifty Shades of Grey of the 50s. And the movie's screenplay was written by John Michael Hayes, who had just come off writing a four-picture run for Alfred Hitchcock, including Rear Window and To Catch a Thief. Hayes had to tone down much of the novel's explicit sexuality, and with journeyman director Mark Robeson at the helm, the film wound up a big-screen soap opera. Still, it was a soap opera that allowed Lana to flex her acting chops and prove for once and for all that she was more than just a pretty face. Lana couldn't say she was surprised as she, along with the rest of the Oscars crowd, watched Joanne Woodward race to the stage to collect her gold statuette when Duke revealed her name inside the envelope. As they said, it was an honor simply to be nominated. For Lana Turner, being made award-worthy was something worth celebrating. To join in the celebration, Lana brought her mother and her daughter, Cheryl Crane, with her to the awards ceremony, much to the chagrin of Johnny Stampinato. Not only did Lana not want all of Hollywood gossiping about a noted gangster as her beau, she remained resolute in her desire to remove Stomp from her life in any way possible. 
Stomp remained supremely offended and let Lana know as much when she returned home that night. She got to bask in the glory of being one of the top five actresses in the country for a few minutes. And then Stomp arrived and their never-ending fight resumed. For Lana's daughter, Cheryl, who often tried to drown out the couple's violent rows with hands over her ears in her bedroom, it was like a bad dream come to life. Every day was as bad as the last. Every day had the potential to be even worse. And she didn't think it could have gotten any worse than Lex Barker. Lex was Lana's second husband. He was known around town as the actor who played Tarzan in a series of RKO movies in the early 50s. But Cheryl got to know him as something even worse. According to Cheryl, Lex had repeatedly raped her since she was 10 years old. He did it for years when Lana was on set and he threatened Cheryl with further violence if she ever said anything. But when Lana found out, she gave Lex 20 minutes to get his shit together and get out of her house. Cheryl figured they had hit rock bottom when it came to her mother's lovers, but the transition from Lex to Stomp was like a jump out of the frying pan and into the fire. Stomp was just a different kind of beast. He didn't do the things to her that Lex had done, but she knew he was capable of other horrible acts. Cheryl had listened to Lana and Stomp get into countless fights at the house. They got into it pretty good, and they were loud. They threw things around, shit broke. According to a memoir that Cheryl published 40 years later, the evening of April 4th, 1958 was worse than most. It was Good Friday, but for Lana Turner's daughter, Cheryl, there was nothing good about it. Cheryl could only cover her ears with trembling hands so much, and there was no drowning out the arguing on this particular evening. On this particular evening, she feared for her mother's life. So instead of barricading herself in her room for one more night, she instead made her way into the kitchen, where she picked up the brand new eight-inch kitchen knife that Lana had just bought that day. But with the knife, she'd scared Johnny Stompanato out of their house and out of their lives. She walked slowly down the hallway towards Lana's bedroom, knife clutched against her stomach. The sharp end of the blade guided away like a dousing rod to water, and the yelling coming from Lana's bedroom intensified. Stompanato dominated the argument. You'll never get rid of me. I'll cut you up. I'll cut you good. Don't think I won't. And Cheryl remembered the time Lana told her about Stomp holding a razor to her face in a hotel somewhere and issuing the same vile threat. In the evening, after the Academy Awards, when Lana walked away from another vicious argument with bruises in places that she could easily conceal, Cheryl took a few more steps toward the bedroom door. She imagined eggshells on the floor. She closed her eyes and she was walking on clouds. Inside the bedroom, voices rumbled again. I'll cut you so good that no one will be able to tell it to you anymore. Bodies rustled. Something hit the floor and smashed into a hundred little pieces. Lana screamed, you'll never work again. And Cheryl tightened the grip of the knife handle. She could feel her hands shaking. Her heart was in her throat. It pounded in her ears. Stomp's voice got louder and more unhinged. Your daughter's next and your fucking mother too. Cheryl was standing right in the front of the bedroom door now. She didn't have to see her mother's face to know the tears were streaming down. Tears of fear, of guilt, and rage. She could hear it in the way Lana's voice was shaking. Cheryl thought about throwing the bedroom door open, leaping inside, blade first, and screaming. Screaming something like, get your fucking hands off of my mother. Would Stomp think she'd do that? Would Stomp think so that she was really that crazy? That a 14-year-old could out-gangster a gangster? But she didn't have to open the bedroom door. It opened for her. It flung open and Lana was there, hand on the doorknob. As she exited the room, her back turned on the argument. 
As she exited the room, Stampinato came after her. His arm was in the air. He was winding up. Cheryl took a step forward towards Stomp, eight-inch blade as her guide. Stomp walked right into Cheryl's hand, right into the knife, which went straight through his unbuttoned silk dress shirt and into his stomach. Stomp's eyes lit up, and Cheryl gasped and let go of the knife handle. And Lana screamed again, but this time, the scream was different than the one Cheryl had heard earlier. Stomp's legs wobbled. Blood began to soak through the front of his shirt. He blinked his eyes in disbelief. God, Cheryl, he said. What have you done? Aggie Underwood turned the plastic baggie over in her hands. She narrowed her eyes to give the hairy contents closer inspection. What am I looking at? She asked. Mickey Cohen puffed on a wet cigar. Mickey dumped a pile of opened envelopes on Aggie's desk. Love letters from Lana Turner to Johnny Stampinato. Aggie raised an eyebrow. Ooh la la, she said and then unfolded letter in hand, proceeded to read a passage of Lana's expressive handwriting out loud. I need to touch you, to feel your tenderness and your strength, to hold you in my arms so, so close, to cuddle you sweetly, and then to be completely smothered in your arms and kisses. Oh, so many kisses. Aggie raised her other eyebrow and looked at Mickey. Oh, so many kisses. Mickey Cohen wasn't buying Lana's story, the one about Stomp walking into Cheryl's knife. He knew when something smelled off, and this whole stomp homicide stunk to high heaven. If he was a betting man, and he was, he'd put his money on Lana Turner as the knife wielder. The kid was just taking the fall, and he was further convinced that the dirt he was confidentially leaking to his good friend, Aggie Underwood, city editor of the Los Angeles Herald Express, painted a very clear picture. That picture was that Lana Turner was head over heels in love with the man who wound up dead in her house. She wasn't scared of him. The letters offered contradictory testimony that in no way was Stomp as awful and violent as he was being portrayed by Lana and her lawyers. Aggie didn't care if it was the truth or not. A scoop was a scoop. She just knew it would sell papers. And so, while readers devoured her steamy love letters in the papers, Lana took the witness stand for the coroner's inquest into the homicide of Johnny Stompanato. To non-believers like fucking gangster Mickey Cohen, Lana's hour-long testimony was the performance of her career. The deep breaths that filled her lungs before she spoke, the white gloves she wore while she twisted her hands together, the played-up anguish, the feverish anxiety, the tears. She hadn't been so convincing since the postman always rings twice, or so Mickey Cohen thought. When Mickey Cohen was asked to testify, he did what he always did when he was put in a courtroom in front of a microphone. He didn't say nothing about nobody. He leaned forward from the witness chair, breath heavy, on the court's mic and said, I refuse to identify the person in question as John Stampinato Jr. on the grounds that I may be accused of this murder. He was on the stand all of two minutes. He left and bought a cheap coffin for Stomp's body. He put up cash for funeral expenses, but he was a no-show at the ceremony. His presence was required in another courtroom in L.A. to face charges for punching out a prick waiter who had accidentally spilled hot coffee all over his suit, in front of Frank Sinatra, no less. Meanwhile, a 12-man coroner's jury quickly ruled Johnny Stompanato's death a justifiable homicide, 
and there would be no charges pressed against Lana Turner or Cheryl Crane. The inquest did, however, shed some light on Lana Turner's skills as a parent, and the district attorney found them lacking, and Cheryl became a ward of the court. And the sensational media circus surrounding the drama in Lana Turner's life did have a positive impact somewhere. Ticket sales for Peyton Place were up 38%. All the ink spilled over Lana and Stomp turned the so-so soap opera into the second highest grossing film of 1958. A year later, the media circus had settled. Cheryl was living with her grandmother. The movie Lana had made in London with Sean Connery, Another Place, Another Time, bombed. Lana was down, not quite out. She was offered a lead role in Douglas Sirk's high art melodrama, Imitation of Life. But there was a catch. She would have to forego a traditional salary in exchange for a percentage of the film's profits. It was a gamble, big time, but it also paid off, really big time. Lana wound up making $2 million off the deal, which in 1959 was the highest salary an American actress had ever earned for a film. And to think, just years before, she was known not as a legitimate actress, but as the sweater girl the one who promised kisses to red-blooded American males with war bond receipts in hand. It was a positive turn of events. It perhaps proof that the house didn't always win. And now the goal would be to maintain that newfound positivity. Fly straight, love well, do good, stay away from the wrong side of the wrong person. But whether or not Lana Turner would be able to do all of that, well, that's another story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.